Our scripture reading is from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. This is God's Word. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the Word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Oh, Father, let Your Word written and spoken and heard by each of us shape our hearts and our minds. Would You give us ears and hearts to understand that we may not refuse Your calling or ignore Your voice. May we all be taught by You through Your powerful Word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ to the glory of Your holy name. Amen. Well, we are in this Malachi series, as you note. If you were here last week, or even if you weren't, but have read any of Malachi in preparation, you will remember from last week, perhaps, that this prophet, the messenger, that's what Malachi means, my messenger, comes to the people, and in this case last week, he comes to the priests. And he addresses the corrupt priests and the corrupt worship that they have installed or they've let accumulate or they've let develop. Uh, corruption doesn't begin on the front end, it begins generally over a period of time. As one thing leads to another, as things slide, as things go unattended. That's how corruption generally occurs. Well, as he addressed corrupt priests in the previous verses in chapter 2, today beginning in verse 10, the messenger Malachi turns his gaze away from the priests to the gathered people. It was the priests and their corrupt worship, and, and now he's turning his face to the people of Judah and their unethical behavior. And as I noted as we began tonight, those two usually go together. An inadequate or a twisted form of worship and the behavior that flows from it. 
It's a little bit like, um, well, I know what God said, but does it really then matter how I live? Or maybe for us, it's, I get the gospel. What difference then should it make? Does it mean for my life? Or is there a connection between the things that are true and the way I live my life? Well, it's going to get exposed today <laughs> because they're inevitably connected. Let me reset the stage for you. Um, of the historical setting of where we are. Malachi is a prophet, as you would note, but he's addressing a people who have resettled the land. When Persia took over Babylon, the Babylonian Empire under Cyrus, the year was 539 when Cyrus came to rule. Cyrus came with that rule, and as he took his place as the head of a new empire, a new policy and the new policy, you remember, these Babylonians had taken away Egyptians, uh, the Israelites into, into exile. They were, they were captive in exile. And Cyrus says, we're going to do things differently. There's a new policy now toward these captive people. And they were encouraged to go home. That was great news for a people that had been longing to go home. And step by step and stage by stage, the captive Israelites began to relocate. Not all of them went. But beginning with Ezra, that you can read about in the book of Ezra, and then Nehemiah, uh, many do return home. And oh, by the way, go home and here's some money to rebuild your religious practices. They were funded by Cyrus, who said, go home and here's what it takes for you to rebuild your previous life. National sanctuaries to the deities of those lands. Cyrus was not a follower of Yahweh in this case, but there was a national deity in Judah that he wanted to give place and permission to, as do other captives in different, different lands. Some returned immediately with Nehemiah's, with the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, had taken from Jerusalem. So when the, when the temple was destroyed, they made off uh, the, the captive, the new nation empire took away the temple vessels, but they were kept. And now as they were returning to the land, some of them brought back the very vessels of the temple and with money to rebuild. And by the time of Malachi's writing, that second temple was rebuilt and had been in operation for at least some time. That's what we heard about last week. It had been in operation for some time, but had gone off course. The temple was up. It didn't look like the original deal. And the, and the, and the priests lost their way along the way. And, their, and the, the worship had been corrupted. This small providence of Judah, by the way, was poor. It was underpopulated, and it was surrounded by strong enemies on all sides. There was a great deal of pressure to assimilate to that surrounding culture. Do you know what that's like? The pressure to assimilate to a surrounding culture? It comes to us day by day, bit by bit, screen by screen, promo by promo of ways to assimilate to the surrounding culture. That's what they were facing. But it didn't come to them through a smartphone or a tablet. It came to them through the pressure 
to intermarry with the nations that surrounded them. Now that may strike you as odd, but when you look at the surrounding strong nations whose economies were in full force and were working, the temptation then for apparently was for those here to look outside the borders for financial gain and security and hope. Looking outside the borders for something that only is found ultimately in God. Yeah, we know something about that too, don't we? Looking outside the borders, looking to the cultures around us. This... um, This situation was dire because the agricultural economy was weak. There were crop diseases and droughts. We read about, we're going to read about that in chapter three. There was a spiritual weakness, though, as well, of the corrupt priesthood and their lax observance of God's law among the peoples. That's what was going on. Agricultural financial weakness, the economy was not good, and there was a spiritual weakness. And when those collide, Bad things can occur. You know, it's difficult to trust a sovereign God when He is unseen and quiet. Do you know anything about that? It's difficult to trust a sovereign God when He is unseen and quiet. The promised land, you see, was not so promising. Growing fatigue and restlessness Was God withholding His blessing? Well, that's what we read here. That God is withholding His blessing because of what is occurring in the hearts and lives of His very own people. So let me me pose something to you. And I'm glad you're sitting down. When the promises of God appear empty, the first place to look may be in the mirror. When the promises of God appear empty, the first place to look may be, the, may be in the mirror. And I say that not, as an alarm, not to alarm you, but it comes right out of this text. That was the case in this land of promise, the, this promised generation after first captives had returned. A generation had gone by. And people were beginning to look outside the promises of God and looking outside the boundaries of their world and outside the culture to other cultures for what can only be found in God. And that should be a reason to pause and to examine our own lives. There are th- there's three, <clears throat> three ways I want us to walk through this passage today. One is to see the charge that God makes, the evidence for that charge, and the remedy that He holds forth. The charge, the evidence, and the remedy. First, the charge. This passage begins with three rhetorical questions. Let me read them to you and unpack them. Have we not all one Father? This is... Malachi speaking on behalf of the people, asking the question that they should be asking. Have we not all one Father? That may refer to a spiritual father, Abraham. It's more likely to God Himself. 
God reveals Himself as a Father. There's one Father, and that means that we have a relationship with one another. Have we not all one Father? That's not talking about a universal fatherhood of God. It's talking about a pledge that God makes to His people. Have we not all one Father? Let's start there, Malachi says. Has not one God created us? That word created is the same word we find in Genesis. But in this context, it's referring probably not to the creation of the world, but to God's forming them into a nation. Has not one God created us? Has not one God, our Father, created us into a nation? That's what happened as He took them out of Egyptian bondage and and forged a covenant with them at Sinai. He became their Father and they became a nation. He's rooting their, their predicament in their identity. Do you get that? Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we then break faith with each other, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Those are rhetorical questions. And when he says break faith, he's talking about treachery. That's a malicious word. It's infidelity captured, uh, captured in this phrase, profaning the covenant of our fathers. Profaning the covenant. Not only disregarding it, but profaning it. And then perhaps you heard this, and if you look at the, at the text, you'll see this word break faith or faithless, depending on your translation. It occurred, it recurs. It shows up five times in these seven verses. You have broken faith. 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 Sinclair Ferguson writing about this text says that Malachi is pinning them against the wall in the back of the temple. You have broken faith. That's the charge, faithlessness. But hear these words quickly. That when God brings a charge against His people, it's with restoration in view. God brings a charge and He he holds the mirror, so to speak, up so that they can see what has been true about their lives, what has become characteristic of their lives, what has become the pattern and the, and the rut that they have ended up in, the ditch that they're in of infidelity. He wants them to see it. And He wants them to begin to taste it. And with five repetitions, He wants them to feel it. That's God's charge. And then He lines up the evidence. There's the charge that they are faithless, and here's the evidence that the people have been faithless. What were their sins? Well, at a glance, you can see that there were, it was complex. There's a first and there's a second, and we might say that those are two parallel offenses, two primary offenses we'll get to in a moment, but there were five sins listed here clustered around those, and I want you to notice and maybe you've noticed this in your own life, and it's, you see it in this passage, how their sins accumulate. Their central sin was of marrying idolaters. We're coming back to that. But the other sins link to that one as a way of doing it, 
as a consequence of doing it. And you notice how inevitably a sin forms a cluster of other sins that are consequences of the central sin, or they'd accompany that sin, or committed to cover up the central sin. Do you know anything about that? Our sins cluster. But underneath it, there's something precise that Malachi is addressing. Uh, of the five sins, we're going to take a little bit of time. It's important to distinguish them, I think, to fully understand what was happening. In verse 11 and 12, you read, they have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Well, you saw that last week. Here it is again. But, but it's also f- f- worthwhile noting that in this context, the word sanctuary could be referring to the facility in which they worship. It could also be referring to the holy seed. That it, the word gets used in both ways. It could be the sanctuary. It could be the people themselves. They have profaned the people, my people themselves. And that seems to fit not only with what was going on last week and continues in a corrupt worship, but these people have profaned themselves the sanctuary of God, the people of God gathered as the holy seed. And now you're going to see how. Number two, they have done this. We read in verse 11, by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, I don't know what image comes to your mind, uh, that foreign god in a wedding ceremony, the people marrying a god. No, what they had done was they were marrying the, the daughters of a land where another god was worshipped. That's what Malachi is getting at. Women from outside of Israel who still remained idolaters. They were now married to Israelite men and brought into Judah. That was occurring. There were weddings that were occurring between Israelite men and and non-Israelite idol-worshipping women from the neighboring nations of Moab, Ammon, and Edom, most likely, of those three. Women from outside of Israel who were still worshiping idols were married and brought in, thus further profaning the people of God. It's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about marrying marrying unbelievers. Uh, That's the same idea that Paul picks up on, what we see here. Intermarriage had always been a a (laughs) no-go. And when the Bible talks about intermarriage, it's not talking about racial intermarriage, it's talking about religious intermarriage or cultural bringing together two ways of thinking and living. But what God is after is a holy seed, a people that are His, that are locked in together on Him. That's what's at issue. Well, there was one other thing that was occurring. Because for these Israelite men to marry foreign wives, their Israelite wives were dropped. That's the language that he uses here. They were divorced. Do not forsake the wife of your youth in order to take up something else that offers you a promise that you're not seeing fulfilled. The wives... Their wives were sent away and replaced by the daughters of foreign gods. 
Ian Duguid says, they were tearing apart the sacred fabric of the community. Laying aside the wife of my youth and taking on the wife of a foreign god who might bring with her economic bonuses, financial privileges. That's what was occurring. They've profaned the sanctuary. They've done this by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. They've divorced their Israelite wife in order to marry a foreign god. And then fourth, their marriage to idolaters will result in a failure to produce godly offspring. Did you see that in verse 15? That's at stake. The next generation is always in view. That what's produced between an Israelite husband and a foreign wife who worships an idol is not a godly offspring most of the time. (laughs) In fact, it's likely that in the home with the mother raising the child, they would not have heard the language of the Scriptures. They would have heard a foreign language and the children growing up to speak another tongue would not be able to understand the Scriptures. Now maybe that's stretching it a bit, but I think that's reasonable. And then finally, verse 16, they have engaged in violence. Um, When I get to verse 16, and everywhere I looked for help on this verse uh, this week and last, I found these words. This, the Hebrew text of verse 16, is one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to translate. Which is why, uh, depending on what translation you have in front of you, we're using the ESV, um, but depending on other translations that that you read, in fact, the ESV has a footnote with a second alternative translation because it's so difficult. Here are the two. Here are the two primary ways of reading verse 16. For the man who does not love, in the Hebrew their word is hate, For the man who hates his wife, does not love his wife, hates her, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. The man who does not love his wife, the man who hates his wife, covers his garment with violence. The other way of reading it is, the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce and the one, the man who covers his garment with wrong. It's either the man, the husband who hates his wife or God who hates divorce. And we're going to go with today for our purposes, it seems to fit best to understand with everything else the Scriptures say that that, that what Malachi has in view is how the ESV translators have handled it. For the man who does not love and hates his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. That's a figure of speech referring to the defiling of one's character through violent wrongdoing. That's what that phrase seems to be getting at. But this footnoted translation and some of what some of you have heard over the years is that God hates divorce. And there's an aspect of that which is on target because divorce is always harsh and most often devastating. And we talk about that today, not merely because it's in the text, because it comes quite close to home for some of you. Divorce is always harsh, and most often, if not always, devastating. It fractures 
a divinely ordained marriage covenant and robs at least one and usually both parties of the dignity and protection afforded by the legal agreement. It robs someone of dignity and protection. And some of you have stories to tell on that regard. I mentioned uh, Ian Dugan's words that divorce tears at the fabric of the community. Some of you know that in addition to my role here at Cornerstone, I work with a ministry called Surge. That's Surge with an E, two E's. Uh, a surge machine comes from the world of the seamstress. It's a sewing machine of sorts that takes two frayed edges, two ragged edges, and brings them together into a beautiful seam. That surge's tagline, grace at the fray. And what I want you to hear today is regardless of how close divorce has come into your world and your life, the gospel is what takes the ragged edges, the torn fabric, and makes a beautiful seam out of your life. The pain that goes with it is harsh. It is often devastating. Divorce breaks the heart, destroys relationships, violates family integrity, damages children's well-being, and makes for us an uncertain future. But there is the hope of the gospel that takes the frayed edges of all of that and brings it together into something that only God can do. Uh, note this. Divorce is never required, but it always tears the fabric. Divorce is sometimes permitted. The Old Testament describes it, the cases when it is due to hardness of heart. The New Testament gets more specific. Adultery and desertion or abandonment are cases for biblical divorce. But hear this, friends. No divorce is unforgivable. And the gospel is always ready to restore that which is frayed. That's what the gospel does. Malachi is addressing a particular kind of issue with men in Israel divorcing their wives, abandoning the wife of their youth, because there's a promise that comes to them in the form of another wife. Imagine you're 16 years old and you have never seen the sunshine because there's been a dark cloud hovering from the day of your birth for 16 years. You've never seen a sunset. You've never seen a sunrise. And someone tells you there's a sun. There's a sun that shines behind those clouds, but you've never seen it. Until the day you board an airplane and climb above the clouds to see what you've never seen before. That is a game changer. There is a sun. Well, these men in Israel were some, living something like under a cloud for a number of years where God seemed to be withholding His blessing. The economy was collapsing. And there's hope promised under the clouds of that land over there. And they're divorcing their wives in order to take on the hope of something else while all the time there's a sun beaming down, yet unseen, 
but as real as the clouds, more real than the clouds, because one day the clouds go away and the sun still shines. Now that's a word picture to hope you step into something of the dilemma and something of the choices that were made. Some of the evidence of the sin. There's the charge and then there's evidence, but God in His grace and His mercy holds out a remedy. And He always does. Because the God, the God who exposes our need by issuing a charge does so with redemption in mind, with reconciliation in mind. That's why He, that's why he makes the charge. It's also why He unfolds the evidence that we come face to face with the particulars with the specifics of how we got where we got. And then He comes to us with a remedy. It's tucked away in that last verse in our passage today. And I want you to see what they got right about the remedy that God offers. Here's what they got right. They were daily bringing their sacrifices that had never stopped. Uh, when, when, the, when the temple was rebuilt and, and worship was reinstituted, the, the sacrifices were made. They got that part right. That the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the, the daily and the rituals of the ceremonial sacrifices were a part of the worship of God. They were to teach a lesson that sacrifice is always required. And boy, they got this right. They continued to bring their sacrifices. They were doing that even as they were plotting to disobey. They were bringing their sacrifices with their foreign wives into the worship of the living God. They had decided worship is one thing, how I live is another. And they don't connect. That's what they got wrong. But notice what they got right, that the necessary sacrifice was a part of the way forward. But what they got wrong was the worship that accompanied that sacrifice was lacking. We read here in verse 13, they covered the Lord's altar with tears. But did you notice what those tears were about? Those were not tears of repentance. They were weeping because God had not accepted their sacrifice. Their crops were failing. That's why they were weeping. They they brought the sacrifice, but they left their heart. They weren't worshiping the living God. They were lamenting and, and weeping over the fact that their crops were failing. It's because God wasn't coming through for them. They were hoping to use God for their benefit. And that's what they got wrong. They were empty sacrifices without hard obedience. This is how the prophet Isaiah, writing to a different people at a different time, wrote this. But this could be Malachi. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Jesus picks up on that in Matthew 15 and says the same about the religious people of the day. They're practicing their religion. And it could be said today of many Maybe us. Would it be said of us, these people honor me with their mouths and their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what they got wrong. 
God was not accepting their sacrifices, and they recognized that. But it begs the question, what does God accept? If He's not accepting these sacrifices, what does He accept? John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and a few other things, uh, wrote this, that the acceptable sacrifice is to walk in holiness and humility and obedience towards and before God. Picking up on 1 Samuel 15, where we read, has, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. They had missed that. Their, their thought was, here's the sacrifice. That's what's needed. And Samuel says, and Bunyan says, no, it's, it's to walk in holiness and humility that accompanies that sacrifice. When you come here on a Sunday morning, it's with a heart that's engaged. And that's why Bunyan says there's one other thing that we find acceptable to God. In Psalm 51, we read, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That had not described the people of Judah in the time of Malachi. There was no broken, brokenness. There was no contrition. But only going through the motions. But God responds. God responds when we get part of it right and we get the rest of it wrong. God responds. And this is what we find in verse 16. You know, how does this passage end? It doesn't end with smoke and fire and a guillotine, a firing line. It doesn't, it doesn't result in that. It doesn't end there. It, we're here, it results and lands with these words. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Keep watch. Observe. Guard yourselves in your spirit. That is, the problems are always inside before they show up outside. You can offer sacrifices, but it's something inside that God is after. Sacrifices offered daily and ritually without a heart that accompanies it don't serve the purpose. Guard yourselves in your spirit and then he says, do not be faithless. One last time, do not be faithless. It's hard to match when Malachi writes with when Nehemiah is, is operating in the same Judah. They overlap. But I want to take you back to Nehemiah 8. You might want to look at this later. Where Nehemiah starts with Ezra the reading of the law for six hours. Nehemiah reads the law of God, newly discovered for six hours, and all Israel is assembled. These people are there, or their fathers were there, depending on how much time has passed. But they were there for six hours and heard the law read with Levites translating it from Hebrew to Aramaic and explaining the meaning like I'm trying to do now. And people were weeping in the presence of the law being read and being explained. And three and a half weeks later, 
They had a national day of repentance and recommitment to the Lord. And we read about that in Nehemiah 9 and 10 where there's this prayer of confession where Nehemiah is praying on behalf of the people and their conviction and their repentance. Followed, this long prayer of repentance followed by what you read about in Nehemiah is a firm covenant in writing. They set out, they said, okay, this is who God is. This is how He's revealed Himself. This is what He's called us to be and do. So we're going to put into words how we're going to live this out. A firm covenant writing to walk in God's law is what it's described as. To do all the commandments of the Lord our God. And at the top of the list, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters as our sons. They understood that intermarriage was off limits. That they were to remain together with their eyes fixed inside the borders of their community. And not taking unbelievers and not taking pagan worshipers and idol worshipers into their homes and into their worship. And by the chapter 13 of Nehemiah, the old paths of unfaithfulness were being followed once again. You know, they couldn't remember what they said yesterday. Do you know anything about that? Living today in light of yesterday's pledge or commitment, how does it carry over? How does it become the norm for us? How does it become the new way of living? We're going to land there, I hope. And it has to do with not only how God responds to them with a call to devotion, to guard yourselves and not be... Do not be faithless because they can't do that, apparently. I want you to hear and land on what their covenant God will do. The God who says, guard yourselves in your spirit, says to His people in Psalm 121, five times, I will guard you. I will keep you. And oh, by the way, it's highly likely that as these people re-entered the land from their Babylonian captivity, they sang these songs of ascent along the way. And when they came to Jerusalem, singing that song, He will guard us. He will keep us. He will keep us. Sun and moon. You will not be struck down by sun or moon. I will guard your coming in and your going out. From this time forth and forevermore, I will guard you around the clock, all of life, all of time. That's the pledge of this covenant God. That's who He is. That's what He's pledged to do. And they have forgotten that. Or they chose to ignore it. Because they're living under a dark cloud. And they don't believe that there's a sun shining above. Their covenant God will guard His people fully around the clock, all of life, for all of time, Psalm 121. He will pursue His bride relentlessly. That Israelite man who's abandoned his wife, God says, I'm not just abandoning, I'm not only not abandoning you, I'm pursuing you relentlessly. You are mine and I am yours. And that pursuit is ongoing. Our hope rests in God's faithfulness, which always trumps our unfaithfulness. 
Israel was an unfaithful wife who regularly strayed from her covenant commitments. She deserved to be divorced and abandoned, yet God pursued his wandering bride and wooed her back to himself. Our covenant God will guard his people fully. He will pursue his bride relentlessly. And finally, he will provide what they cannot produce. You know, if, um, if they're nailed to the back of the temple wall with infidelity, it becomes very evident that what they need is someone who could do what they cannot do to live faithfully. And that's what you have, friends, in Jesus Christ. Malachi sets the table for that. The infidelity that marked their lives, we recognize that. That is all too true of us. Unfaithful, unfaithful, unfaithful. What we need and what God, our covenant God has provided is one who is faithful, who will be our representative. It's His faithfulness. It's His obedience that God provides for an unfaithful people. And if they are nailed to the back wall of the, of the temple by that infidelity charge, there is another one who is nailed to a tree because of that. There is one final thing that we find acceptable to God, and that is the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ for our sins who died once for all, for all time. It's by His sacrifice, one sacrifice, that all those other sacrifices were to point to. And here we are today standing in the reality of a sun that shines (laughs) through the clouds to remind us that there is one who gave His life, a final sacrifice for all time. That's how Hebrews describes it. That is your hope. That is your joy. And you know what that produces? It produces a broken and contrite heart. When you see what God has done for you, it produces in you that broken and contrite heart. And it produces an unfeigned loyalty. Not a perfect loyalty, but an unfeigned loyalty to the one who made you. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, a theologian, and one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly who wrote this. Often I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me. But blessed be His name. He keeps it in heaven safe. And He stands by it always. Our God is a faithful God. He is a faithful God to an unfaithful people who look to the one who was faithful on your behalf, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, that truth of the final sacrifice of Christ on our behalf is life-altering. It's game-changing. It's a reminder to us that the sun is shining even in the dark clouds of our lives. 
when your promises seem unfulfilled and, and your blessing withheld. Lord, we look to You, the One who is good and merciful. And as You stir us and as You awaken us to not only our need, but Your lavish love and provision, Your blessings follow. Lord, would You shower us this day with the blessing of knowing that Your love is unending. That Your commitments are sure. And Your promises are true. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.